Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. We've looked at how and why Christianity lost the kingdom message. In this episode, you'll learn how we got it back. Over the last 500 years, three different movements have made significant strides in recovering the kingdom. The Anabaptists in the 16th century, the Adventists in the 19th century, and liberal scholars in the 20th century. In this lecture, you'll get a brief overview of each of these groups and see a bit about how they learned about the kingdom message and did their part to restore that message to prominence today. This is lecture 14 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Also, if you'd like to take a class live, I'm teaching September 18th to the 22nd at the Atlanta Bible College. So if you've been taking this and you want to sit in as an auditor or take the class for credit, just contact AtlantaBibleCollege.com and look up David Krogh, the registrar for the Atlanta Bible College. He can get you set up so that you can meet in the classroom and interact and see the visuals. I'm doing basic Bible doctrine where I look at around a dozen different doctrines from theology, eschatology, soteriology, and so on, to lay a foundation of what are the main beliefs that the Bible teaches. And it would be great to meet you and see you there. So hopefully some of you can make it down for that. Without further ado then, here is number 105, Recovering the Kingdom. Lecture 14, Rediscovering the Kingdom. We've looked at the three major reasons, there are probably others as well, why Christianity ended up rejecting the kingdom in favor of the heaven idea. A lot of it had to do with the prejudices of their day, the common sense of their day, the sense of what the universe was like, the sense of what bodies were like, the sense of what morality should be, and competition with the synagogue as well. So now the question becomes, all right, Sean, so now we know how the kingdom was lost. How is it that we know about it today. How, how was it rediscovered? How was it found? Well, of course, the story is a little more complicated than this because people, I'm sure, continue believing in the kingdom. In fact, there's an interesting, I think it's the Fifth Lateran Council of the Catholic Church where they outlawed believing that dead people are asleep. And that happened sometime in the Middle Ages. Why would you have a, such a declaration if everyone believes they go to heaven when they die? You don't, right? So, I mean, I think there are other people in between, but I'm going to focus on three movements to recover the kingdom. And the first happens in the 16th century, and that is the Anabaptists. And the second happens in the 19th century, and that's the Adventists. And then the third happens in the 20th century, and that's the liberal scholars, mostly German. German. And it's funny too because the sophisticated scholars were the last ones to rediscover the kingdom. It's kind of ironic. In the 1440s, the invention of Gutenberg's printing press led to a re-examination of traditional Catholic doctrines. So as far as the Anabaptists are concerned, I want to begin by looking at 
Gutenberg and his printing press. It's hard for us to imagine a world without print, but the invention of the printing press was analogous to the invention of the internet. I mean, it was suddenly possible to acquire knowledge inexpensively because before the printing press, you had to hand copy a book. How long would that take? A really long time, right? So suddenly, because of Gutenberg's printing press, ideas start spreading like wildfire, whereas before it would take years for ideas to get traction. And heralds, you know, people sent out to proclaim. Now you can print a thousand books and drop them in a village and people can come in and buy the books and those ideas can spread like wildfire. And so one, one of the things that ended up happening, this is the Gutenberg Bible here in Latin. It's printed in 1454. Once the Bible starts coming into the hands of the people, people start reading the Bible. And part of the result of that is that they start questioning what the church tells them they have to believe because now they have a second source other than the church, namely the book the church says they're basing their beliefs on, that, they're, you know, that they say is sacred and holy. Right? The church is pro-Bible, Catholic church, right, in the Middle Ages. But yet the Bible contradicts a bunch of the practices of the church. And pff, somehow we get the Protestant Reformation out of that. In fifth, says 1454, the Gutenberg Bible. In 1516, we get Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus's Greek New Testament. This is a picture of it here. You can see on the left column is Greek. And on the right column, it's Latin. It was a parallel Bible that he came out with in 1516, Erasmus. And this publication was just absolutely groundbreaking because now that you had easy access, easy and expensive access to the Greek behind the New Testament, if you wanted to translate a Bible into German, you could do it. And so that's exactly what Luther did. He translated in 1522, Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German. Das Neue Testament. That's what that says. It's hard to read that kind of print there. So then after him, in 1526, very shortly after, William Tyndale. Right? So we had Gutenberg, then Erasmus, and then it's just like a flood. Luther, Tyndale, Coverdale, any other Dales out there? Uh, and so this is uh, Tyndale's Bible. It says the Gospel of St. John, the first chapter. I wanted to show you this too because it's, it's got uh, an interesting point here. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was that Word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it. <laughs> William Tyndale. Yeah, we owe so much to William Tyndale. It's, it's hard to overstate it. So he went back to Erasmus? Yes. Once Erasmus gets that Greek out there, people are like, wow, we have the Greek of the New Testament. Let's make some translations for the people. And this was a big movement. This is 1534. So his original came out in, uh, what, 1522? And then in 1534, 
Luther comes out with a complete Bible, which is to say he translated the whole Old Testament too. Yeah, ju- yeah, everything before that was just the New Testament. Erasmus was just the New Testament. Luther was just the New Testament. Tyndale was just the New Testament. And then in 1534, Luther comes out with the complete Bible, and that's what I believe Coverdale does as well, is a complete Bible. Luther in German? In German, yeah. All right, so anyhow, that's Luther. And then we have the Coverdale Bible, the New Testament of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Gospel of St. Matthew, the first chapter. As a result of all these Bible translations, and there are many more, there's the Bishop's Bible, then eventually King James comes out with an update to the Bishop's Bible, which is known as the King James Version. And all of this is happening in the 1500s. This gets this group of people, well, it gets everybody excited, but this group of people in particular, the Anabaptists, really start seeing the kingdom in the Bible. And this is a quote from George Williams. George Williams is a scholar of Anabaptists. He wrote a book called The Radical Reformation. Uh, It's a massive, massive book. And it's written in fairly impenetrable scholarly English which makes it difficult to ever get through or even get a page through, honestly. But this is so fascinating. Look at this. Because the New Testament uses the euphemism of sleep, the term soul sleep, Seelenschlaf, is often encountered in the 16th century. Soul sleep is the idea that you are out of it until... The resurrection. Look, if you believe in the sleep of the dead, whether in a literal or metaphorical sense, whatever sense, you probably also believe in the kingdom. Because why are you out of it? Why are you unconscious? It's because you're awaiting the reward to come when Jesus returns. All right. And so what he says is it in the 16th century, because of the New Testament. So now all of a sudden, because of the Bible, not because of Greek philosophy or because of the Catholic Church, but because of the Bible. The, the pe- it's, it's huge. The people get the Bible in their own tongue. They can read it. And so in the 16th century, in people who are writing, you see this phrase a lot, soul sleep. It will be sharply opposed by Calvin, George Williams says, in his first theological work, Psychopanachia, which came out in the year 1534, same year as Luther's Bible. Now, this is a strange word, and most people say that Calvin actually used it incorrectly. At least Wikipedia says so. This important work against Anabaptists, and perhaps Servetus, supplies our generic term psychopanicism. In the present narration for that full range of Christian views not in line with the decree on the natural immortality of the soul of the Fifth Lateran Council and of Calvin himself, who would come to hold to the continued consciousness of the departed souls as saints under the altar, participants as the elect in the invisible church, awaiting the last judgment. Luther, for his part, was himself, at the outset of his scriptural career as reformer, a psychopanicist as was his most renowned English follower, the Bible translator, William Tyndale. I mean, it, let me just unpack this a little bit, because this is, this, is so, this is so cool. This is so cool. So we've got 
these people called the Anabaptists, if, if you're not familiar with the Reformation period, in the Reformation, you really have three wings. You have the Catholic Church, you have the Protestants, the Protestants are especially Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. These are the main Protestants, and the Protestant churches come out of that. And then you have this third wing over here called the Anabaptists, and these are people that are radicals of some sort, typically radically committed to following what Jesus said instead of just believing that he's our Savior, but also following his words. Radical new idea. And so the Anabaptists are, according to George Williams, associated with this idea of the sleep of the dead, which is what psychopanachia means, the sleep of the dead. And Calvin, I mean, just John Calvin is this incredibly brilliant scholar. He's a child prodigy. He graduates early. He's, he gets the highest level education of his time. And he's fluent and has facility in many different languages, ancient and modern. And what does he choose to do, John Calvin, with his very first book that he ever writes? What's the first battle he wants to fight? It's against people who believe that dead people are asleep. What does that tell you? That that was a big idea at the time, or else why fight against it? It must have been in the water, so to speak. People must have been talking like this a lot. Then what George Williams talks about here is Luther and William Tyndale. So Martin Luther, at the outset, himself believes that dead people are asleep. He might have changed that later on. And then the Bible translator, William Tyndale. So, I mean, those are, those are two powerhouses to have on the team, at least Luther to some degree, and Tyndale 100%. So that's, that's part of this rediscovery in the 16th century of the Anabaptists about the um, sleep of the dead. And like I said to you before, if I can find the sleep of the dead, chances are I'm going to find the kingdom of God as well. Because the, the, whole, the whole idea of traditional Christian piety is that, you know, I've showed you this before, right? You have earth here in the middle, heaven up top, and then hell, except if you're Catholic, purgatory, and then hell. So it's a four-layer cake if you're Catholic. So then, you know, you could go down to, to purgatory, but there's like, this, there's like this ladder to get to heaven from purgatory. Okay, so like you get down to purgatory, you like burn for a while, purge all your sins, and then you get to this ladder. Eventually, you can still go to heaven. But anyhow, the point is, all the action happens the moment that you die. Whatever happens, happens when you die. That's traditional medieval Catholic doctrine. Soul sleep introduces this temporal element where, where you're, you, you die over here sometime during this present evil age. You die, okay? It's very sad. And then you're just kind of like, you're waiting. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for something to happen, someone to happen. You're waiting for Jesus to come back, right? So what it does is it takes that spatial way of thinking about eschatology and makes it temporal because you're waiting. You're not going, you're waiting. And so it, it lends itself to this whole kingdom idea.
what ended up happening though is that some Anabaptists and some radicals that become associated with the Anabaptists end up getting super excited about apocalypticism. And so we have we have two kinds of apocalypticists. We have active, and I'm not gonna spell that again, but passive, all right? These are two types of apocalypticists. Apocalypticists are people that believe the end is coming. Okay, that Jesus, that it's not, the goal is not just to die. The goal is for Jesus to come back and establish his kingdom. All right, that's an apocalypticist. Typically, an apocalypticist also says something about when it's going to happen. Like, it's going to happen next May. Right? And uh, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But there was this knucklehead named Melchior Hoffman who. Well, he prophesied when the end was going to come. He got it wrong, but he had a lot of followers and disciples. And it ended up that in this one city named Munster, there in uh, Germany, that the radicals took over a city. And they believed that if they took over the city and kicked out all the pagans and reproduced enough and got themselves up to the number 144,000, that Jesus would come back. And it ended disastrously with the siege of the Catholics around the city and killing a lot of people, and especially the, uh, the leaders of that city. I don't really want to go into that, but my point is, look, you're not going to get a monster or some sort of crazy revolution like that if you think the name of the game is just to live a good life and then die. These guys are trying to bring Jesus back, right? And that's this active apocalypticism, the idea that, by doing something, we can make Jesus come back. Whereas the passive is like, all right, Jesus is going to come back when Jesus wants to come back. I'm just going to do what, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to spread the word, but I can't make him come back. So that's the difference between an active and passive apocalypticist. So George Williams, once again, goes on to say, not only psychopanicism, but also anti-Trinitarianism, was to find its fullest expression, ecclesial expression, in Polish Jacinianism and Hungarian Unitarianism. This is like Church History 2 stuff here. The leaders of these two were dependent on Italians. Well, that's not as significant. But my point here is that these Polish Jacinians and the Hungarian Unitarians both believe in the sleep of the dead, which I'm going to argue probably means they also believe in the kingdom. And they're Unitarian. They're biblical Unitarian. They believe in the Bible, but they also believe that the Father is the only true God. So these two groups are part of the Anabaptists of the 16th century. And they're also kingdom believers, what we would call Adventists, people that are looking forward to Jesus coming back rather than just dying and flying away in the sky by and by. There's a lot more that... I'm sure we could say about 16th century Anabaptists and see what they believed about the kingdom. There, like I said, there were a lot of ideas about it. There were, there were some crazy ideas. There was one group that decided, well, since Adam and Eve were naked in paradise and we're supposed to embody the kingdom, we're going to be naked too. And they founded a nudist colony, and that did not go well for them. And, you know, there are all kinds of other groups and, and things that happen in the 16th century where they discover the kingdom that, that aren't uh, probably not even recorded in history. But 
we know that it was a significant movement. Now we move to the 19th century and this man here, William Miller. William Miller lived from 1782 to 1849. He's the father of Adventism. And this is a movement that took place in America in the 1800s and it's extremely significant. You know, what's so cool about the Adventist movement is that they, they just figure out the kingdom on their own. You know, it's just like just reading the Bible and, and they discover it and they figure it out. And so what is an Adventist? Anybody want to tell me? Waiting the second coming. Right, right. An Adventist is someone who believes that Jesus' advent is yet to come, right? Jesus already had the first advent, the first coming. It's a Latin word for coming. When he was born, he lived on earth, right? But then he's coming again. So an Adventist is somebody who believes that Jesus is coming again. Now, again, because of the, the Catholic influence, because of even John Calvin's influence among the Protestants, most Christians, especially in America, believed that when you die, you just go to heaven or hell in the, in the, in the 1800s. That's just what everybody believed. So discovering by reading the Bible that Jesus is coming back, to, to us, this does not sound very shocking. To them, it was like, he's coming back? What? You know, it was just like this huge revelation. And so William Miller was at the center of this. Some, so an Adventist is someone who believes Jesus is coming back. And almost always, Adventists also believe in the sleep of the dead. Almost always. Whether it's soul sleep or soul death or whatever kind of understanding you want to give it, they don't believe you're conscious in the intermediate state, by and large. All right, so let me tell you the story about William Miller. He was an American Baptist who preached in upstate New York. Come on, that's my place. He preached in Hampton, which is east of Lake George on the Vermont border, a place I have never been. And he studied the prophecies of Daniel using a day-year method. Do you know what that is? Yeah, you're pretty familiar with that. Okay. And so he concluded, as a result of that, in the year 1822, he concluded that the end of the world and the return of Christ would happen in the year 1843. And so he, he came to that understanding in the year 1822 that in 1843, which is 21 years off, that Christ would come. So that's a lot of time to prepare. So he didn't say anything about it. That was just his own private conclusion. But then about 10 years later, actually nine years later, he made a public declaration. That's in the year 1831. He said, Jesus is coming back in 12 years. Just so you all know, FYI. Uh, I don't think they used that acronym back then. He submitted 16 articles to the Vermont Telegraph, which was a Baptist paper and people responded in droves. He was overwhelmed with the response. And so he wrote a 64-page book, and the movement just spread like wildfire. Uh, the 1800s was the age of periodicals. It was the age where if you printed out a newsletter or some sort of short book, some sort of literature, people would read it. People, that's, that's what people did in the evening. There was no TV, there was no radio. I don't know if there was radio. So people actually had to read. What's that? Internet. And there was no internet, right? No Facebook, no Twitter. 
No Snapchat. I mean, what are you, what are you gonna do? You're just gonna have to read and talk to other humans. Anyhow, between 50,000 and 100,000 people ended up believing William Miller's prediction of Christ's return. And he set the date, he set a couple of different dates. Basically, he didn't set a specific number. He just said it's going to be sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1843, or 1844. So between 1843 and 1844. But it turns out March 21st passed and Jesus didn't come back. So he changed it to April and then Jesus still didn't come back. And then there was a camp meeting where this man named Samuel Snow said, I believe the date is October 22nd. And for whatever reason, that's the one that everyone got excited about. So October 22nd, 1844, came to be known to history as the Great Disappointment. Because everyone in this movement was totally convinced Jesus is coming back. They prepared for it. Many of them sold all their possessions to print these magazines and these journals to spread the word and then Jesus didn't come back. People were bewildered, they were disillusioned, many people gave up on the Adventist movement. It wasn't called the Adventist movement yet, it was called the Millerite, William Miller movement and they were called Millerites who followed him. Many people gave up and went back to the old denominations. And then in the year 1845, in one of the holy places on earth, there was the Albany Conference. That's just where I, I live right near Albany. So it's definitely not a holy place. <laughs> not even close. It's the most post-Christian city in the country, according to George Barna. But uh, I think his survey is skewed, personally, against... Catholics. All right, so anyhow, in 1845, after the devastating disappointment of 1844, there was the Albany Conference. At the Albany Conference, 61 delegates attended. Millerites wanted to determine the future of the movement, and they, at this conference, started using the word Adventists, or Second Adventists, because they wanted to be clear talking about it. So these are people that have been through it. You know, they've had a tough run they believed in this whole day-age theory from Daniel. It didn't work out. But they still, they still see it in Scripture. They're still like, no, we're pretty sure Jesus is still coming back. Obviously, we are wrong about the date, but we're going to hold to this. And from here, we had three groups that emerged. The Seventh-day Adventists, the Evangelical Adventists, and the Spiritualizer Adventists. So from William Miller... 1844-1845, we get these three main strands that come out of it. The Seventh-day Adventists, the Evangelical Adventists, and then the Spiritualizers. The Spiritualizers basically die out very early on. And the Evangelical Adventists end up splitting into some other groups, three other groups, which is the Advent Christian Church, the Life and Advent Union, and the Age to Come Adventists, which is also under the leadership of Benjamin Wilson, known as the Church of God of the Abrahamic Faith. And then also the Christadelphians under John Thomas came out of that Age to Come Adventists as well. So, and this all happens in the 1800s, right? It's just a huge time for people to rediscover 
that Jesus is coming back. And then the question is, well, okay, Jesus is coming back. What's he coming back for? To establish the kingdom. Hence, I mean, look at that. Look, I love that name. That's such a great name, right? Age to come Adventist. I mean, how do you not like that? It's pretty cool. Or the Church of God of the Abrahamic Faith. Remember the covenants with Abraham, right? And all that kind of thing. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists, of course, were different because they believed in the seventh day being the Sabbath and keeping the law of Moses. But then they're also Adventists, so they still believe in the kingdom, just like the other Adventists. Sometimes the Seventh-day Adventists would be distinguished from these other churches by saying, well, these are first-day Adventists. There's a Seventh-day Adventist and first-day. That's talking about what day you worship God on, not what day Jesus is coming back on. Joseph Marsh got involved with the... Age to come, Adventist, we have his name here on the diagram, Joseph Marsh, 1802 to 1863. He grew up in Rochester, New York. Man, I've really, I've really contributed a lot, my, my state, to this. He had been the editor, Joseph Marsh had been the editor of the Millerite Papers, and he was there in 1845, but he, he stopped associating with Miller after that because, you know, let's face it, Miller got it wrong. So I can see why he did that. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, Benjamin Wilson really guided the movement as it developed into the Church of God of the Abrahamic faith. It's interesting, all these groups, whether we want to talk about the Seventh-day Adventists, the Advent Christian Church, the, I don't know if this one is still alive, Life and Advent Union, um, Church of God, right? Obviously, this is Atlanta Bible College, the college of the Church of God, right? And then the Christadelphians, all these groups had the kingdom way back in the 1800s. Are the Bible students still around? Uh, yeah, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses today. That's uh, Charles Taze Russell. Cool middle name. Yeah, all these groups are still around today, and they still believe in the kingdom, still preaching the kingdom. The biggest is by far the Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, how many million are you now? Like 15 million, something like that? Uh, it's, it's pretty big. And then um, probably the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the Bible students there. It's funny that they grow so much considering they do so much excommunicating. You would think it would not work that way. Like if we just started excommunicating people, we would just probably fizzle out, right? <laughs> but the Jehovah's Witnesses are like, no, we don't want any weak. Oh, yeah, then they can come back if they uh, stand in the back and, yeah suffer humiliation for a little while. That's a little, you know, and I'm just giving you a little flavor for the 16th century and the 19th century. Now let's look at the scholars in the 20th century, because that's also part of the story of how this thing was recovered. This right here is Johannes Weiss. Johannes is probably how you would say that. Well, let me, let me give you the whole thing here. All right, so Johannes Weiss comes out with a book in the year 1892 called The Proclamation of the Kingdom of God. Actually, it's called Jesus' Proclamation of the Kingdom of God. And what Johannes Weiss discovered is that Jesus preached the kingdom. You know, which to us maybe doesn't sound all that exciting, but it was brand new, it was fresh, and... It was exciting. Shortly after him, less than 10 years later, a man named Albert Schweitzer came out with his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. In that book, 
he sketched out the history of all these people who have been trying to rediscover or recover the historical Jesus, okay? And so what had happened is there was a movement in Europe called the Enlightenment, and there was a lot of criticism of belief on the basis of authority. Authority held sway for centuries, especially during the medieval period, and, but even really before that. And after the Enlightenment, people basically just distrust authority, and they only want to trust reason. This is like the beginning of the modern period or modernist period. As a result, sophisticated Christian scholars stopped believing that the Bible was authoritative in Germany. Well, in other places too, but these are a certain group of scholars that become liberal at this point. And the big issue they have with the Bible, with, with Jesus and the Gospels in particular, is the miracles. They, they, just like, they just don't believe in miracles anymore. You know, because a miracle is the least reasonable thing to ever happen, right? Because you have all these laws of nature. And they, they, they conceived of the universe as like a great watch that was wound up and everything had a law and a principle and it just kind of was ticking along in a very predictable manner. And so there's no way Jesus could have walked on the water. So what, what they do is they're like, well, we're still Christians. We want to do scholarship. So let's figure out what really happened there. And they're like, well, maybe Jesus knew where the stones were. And he was standing on these stones in the lake there, and they thought he was walking on the water. Or maybe they were so turned around by the storm that they thought they were in the middle of the sea, and they were really just still at the shore, and Jesus just kind of like waded out to them, and they thought he was walking on the water. And then they realized they were already there. Right? And so they're trying to come up with explanations. They're like, when Jesus fed the 5,000, it's a miracle of sharing. You know, Jesus started sharing and then everyone else just took out their lunches and they all started sharing and that's how everyone got the food. Uh, and so they're, they're coming up with these rationalistic explanations and they're saying, well, the historical Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but the historical Jesus was really like this. And that had been going on for a while before Albert Schweitzer. And basically what he says to them is you guys are all looking in the mirror and you're remaking Jesus in your own image. And that's why he looks like a liberal Protestant when you're done with him. <laughs> and uh, he, he uses this image of looking down in a well and seeing your own reflection. Albert Schweitzer says, basically, Johannes Weiss is right. Jesus isn't like you. Jesus is different than you. Jesus is this Jewish prophet of the coming kingdom. However, Albert Schweitzer does not accept the resurrection. Why? Because it's a miracle. So he sees Jesus as preaching this kingdom and then dying tragically. This is a quote from his book. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. So Schweitzer is here saying that Jesus is trying to bring the kingdom. It refuses to turn and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. 
The wheel rolls onward, the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign, published 1906, as uh, from Ramirez to Reed, this uh, scholars that he was analyzing. So this is obviously a very depressing view of the Bible and of Jesus. Albert Schweitzer, after he wrote this book, gave up on Christianity, moved to Africa, opened a clinic, and worked as a doctor helping the poorest of the poor in the world, living out his personal life motto, reverence for life. So it's not as exciting of a story <laughs> because although they get the kingdom, they lose the resurrection. And so it remains to this day. So it, this is 1906, Albert Schweitzer, in the year 1999, the uh, tail end of the 20th century, Bart Ehrman comes out with his Jesus book. And he says in his book, the view shared probably by the majority of scholars over the course of this century, and of course he's writing at the end of the 20th century, at least in Germany and America, is equally shocking for most non-specialist readers. And yet, it is scarcely known to the general public. This is a view that is embraced in this book. In a nutshell, it's a view first advanced most persuasively by none other than the great 20th century humanitarian Albert Schweitzer. It claims that Jesus is best understood as a first century Jewish apocalypticist. This is a shorthand way of saying that Jesus fully expected that the history of the world as we know it, well, as he knew it, was going to come to a screeching halt, that God was soon going to intervene in the affairs of this world, overthrow the forces of evil in a cosmic act of judgment, destroy huge masses of humanity, and abolish existing human, political, and religious institutions. All this would be a prelude to the arrival of a new order on earth, the kingdom of God. Moreover, Jesus expected that this cataclysmic end of history would come in his own generation, at least during the lifetime of his disciples. Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, 1999. So what is, what is Ehrman saying here? Ehrman's saying that, look, ever since Albert Schweitzer, scholars, a good number, a good percentage of scholars, uh, especially liberal scholars, have accepted the kingdom message as being at the heart of Jesus. But like Schweitzer, they think that Jesus' goal was to proclaim that the kingdom was about to arrive. And he got it wrong. And he died. And they don't believe in resurrection. Bart Ehrman doesn't believe in resurrection. He doesn't believe in any miracles. He says as a historian, he's not allowed to believe in miracles as part of the method of doing history that he uses which I think is a cop-out, but anyhow, that's another, that's more of an apologetics kind of thing. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that in the 20th century, the scholars discover, at least liberal scholars, discover the kingdom. However, because this aspect of scholarship has become so ingrained, now Bible-believing scholars are also starting to see that as well. Evangelical scholars like the bishop N.T. Wright, who writes... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's good on a lot of stuff. Not on everything, but he's good on a lot of stuff. He writes, But theocracy, in a sense yet to be defined, is of course what is meant by the kingdom of God, which the Synoptic Gospels highlight as a central motif of Jesus' public announcements 
and which the fourth gospel presupposes as his central theme. The first time we meet it in John, it seems to be assumed that this is what Jesus is all about. We know from Josephus that the revolutionaries in the last century before the disastrous Roman-Jewish war took as their battle cry the slogan, No King But God. Presumably, they thought they knew how God would exercise that kingly rule. Probably they imagined themselves having some role as divine agents, but we should not doubt that God's kingdom denoted, and this is the good part, the long-awaited rule of Israel's God on earth as in heaven. The widespread assumption today that the kingdom of God denotes another realm altogether, for instance, that of the heaven to which God's people might hope to go after their death, was not on the first century agenda. When Jesus spoke about God's kingdom and taught his followers to pray that it would arrive on earth as it is in heaven, he was right in the middle of first century Jewish theocratic aspirations. This is from an article, Imagining the Kingdom, Mission and Theology in Early Christianity, or a sermon, probably. So, N.T. Wright and quite a few other evangelical, that Bible-believing, to various degrees, scholars are now seeing the kingdom in the tw late 20th and early 21st century. I'll give you one other example here. This is Timothy Keller, and this is from a sermon he gave in New York City called The Vision of Redeemer. Redeemer is the name of his church. And don't get me wrong, I would disagree with a lot that these people say in other categories. But this is so good. It's just so good. I mean, and, and he's almost like a mainline Presbyterian type guy. And yet, as a mainliner, he sees this clear as day. In the future, you have all these cultural activities going on. Why? Because our future is a material future. Amen, brother. Take that, Gnostics, Plato, and the early Christian theologians. The book of Revelation makes it very clear. At the end of time, the end of history, we do not see us as individuals leaving the material world and going off into some ethereal realm, a disembodied spiritual realm. Instead, we see the power of God coming down to cleanse and perfect. Mm, that's so good, this material world. So if you want to see the future of the human race, you look at Jesus after the resurrection when he had his absolutely perfect glorified body, but he could eat a fish. There's those bodily pleasures, right? <laughs> You could put your hand through the nail prints and you could feel him. Now, contrary to everything you've ever heard through Star Trek, the evolutionary future of the human race will not be balls of light or points of consciousness. We are going to hug and be hugged. We are literally going to eat, drink, and dance in the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? We have these three different recoveries of the kingdom of God throughout time. The Anabaptists in the 16th century, the Adventists in the 19th century, and then the scholars in the, the liberal scholars in the 20th century, and now it's starting to filter into conservative scholars, finally, in the 21st century. Okay, so the question I have for you is, who will carry the kingdom torch in the 21st century? Is it going to be you? I mean, think about how important the kingdom is. What have we seen in this class? We've seen that it's the hope. We've seen that it's the gospel message we preach. We see that it's influential on how we live based on uh, the whole idea of proleptic living, the idea of embodying the future now. It changes our allegiances. 
You look at Jesus, it was his title, whether you talk about son of God, son of David, son of man, Messiah, it's all related to this coming kingdom for him. It occupied his thoughts constantly. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. He says it's like a pearl of great price. He says it's a treasure in a field. It's something that makes sense of life. You know, what does a hope do? A hope, according to Hebrews, is the anchor of the soul. So in, in tough times, when we suffer or we lose a loved one, we're like a ship, right? Now a ship still moves if it's anchored a little bit. It doesn't get shipwrecked. It doesn't go off miles and miles, right? I mean, it, and, and so the hope anchors us. It helps us to get through tough times in life. And even if none of that were true that I just said, the kingdom will still help you read the Bible. <laughs> because the Bible's all about this message. We've seen throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, all these prophecies, all the New Testament, right? All these references to the kingdom of God. So it's a really big deal, and I think, I think we need to publish this message. We need to get the word out. We need to proclaim in whatever way you can, whatever way I can. All right, so when we come back, we're going to look at interpreting misunderstood texts about the kingdom. So we're going to look at allegedly difficult texts. I spent some time on them because, you know what, that's important. People will bring up issues and say, well, what about this first? What about that first? So we want to spend a good deal of time, actually the rest of our time, looking at that. All right, so we'll look at that next time. I hope you found that interesting. Obviously, I could only scratch the surface on these three movements. If you want to know more about the Anabaptists, of course, you can read primary sources, but uh, a really good access point, a really good secondary source, which I mentioned in the lecture, is George Hunston Williams' very thick book called The Radical Reformation, and he gives a lot of good footnotes there as well as summary statements. Also, if you want to do more research on the Adventist groups, uh, they mostly have websites today, so you can do uh, online searches for them, and also Wikipedia has a very helpful article that will show you a diagram of the trajectory of the various Adventist groups, including the Church of God General Conference. Also, if you're interested in accessing liberal scholarship, I would recommend The Quest for the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, or Bar Ehrman has a Jesus book, which sadly is loaded with all of his skepticism and negativity towards belief in miracles, but it does do a good survey of the uh, scholarship that has come before. His book on that is called Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, came out in 2001, before a lot of his really anti-Christian stuff really started swirling around. But that gives you a little insight into the scholarly movement. Before wrapping up, though, I did want to read out a comment that we got on Interview 17, which is a while back in April, which was called, Will All Israel Be Saved? with Matthew Elton. And Richie Temple writes, Sean, I really enjoyed this podcast. You guys did an excellent job all the way through, and I'm especially happy that you discussed the issue so well in both its biblical and multi-layered historical contexts. Having studied this subject a great deal myself over the course of my lifetime, I was glad to hear so many excellent points brought out, especially emphasizing the continuity of the people of faith throughout the Bible in terms of the working out of God's ultimate plan of salvation, culminating in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah of God. I think the only thing that was said that I slightly disagree with is your final conclusion as to the meaning of, and so all Israel will be saved. 
I very much agree with your point that salvation in the New Covenant era is only through faith in Christ. Therefore, that must be true for Israel according to the flesh as well. However, rather than understanding Israel in this verse as something along the lines of the Israel of God, God's true people through faith in Christ, I think the context rather strongly suggests that Paul is speaking of ethnic Israel in this particular verse. Most of the best biblical commentators, in my view, resolve this problem by seeing the phrase all Israel as meaning in accordance with extra-biblical Jewish writings of the times to mean Israel as a whole. That is, that after the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the majority of ethnic Israel will also be saved through faith in Christ. I think either this understanding or the Israel of God understanding are both viable and ultimately also both rest on the truth that salvation is through faith in faith. All the major commentaries discuss these and other options. My favorites are the small Tyndale volume on Romans by F.F. Bruce and the much larger Anchor Bible volume on Romans by Fitzmaier. Anyway... Thanks to both of you for this excellent podcast and all of the other great work you are doing. Well, thanks a lot, Richie Temple, for writing in and for that very helpful comment. I think you're right. Those are the two main options that I see as well. The uh, episode, this interview number 17 I did with Matt Elton, really did focus on this question of can a Jew who is faithful to the law of Moses be saved if this person never comes to believe in Jesus? And essentially... The answer that Elton gave was no. Without faith in Christ, you know, that's <laughs> faith in Christ is how we arrive at salvation, so you cannot get there some other way. And uh, he substantiated that with a reading of a number of Pauline epistles, but especially giving attention to Romans chapter 9. So if you're interested in that episode, check it out. It's interview number 17. You can get it at restitudio.org or just scroll down in the podcast feed to interview 17. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.